Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Happy pre-Thanksgiving, everybody. Um, we are live in the studio today. I'm so happy to have in the studio um, Molly Rayner from Neutral Zone, the Literary Arts Program Manager, and Dante Clark, Artistic Director of Stain Power, Concrete Not Wood, a multi-genre production by Ypsilanti and Richmond, California Youth. And we're going to be lucky enough to hear a bit more about an upcoming event that, that you all are producing. Um, so Molly, Dante, welcome to Living Writers, and thanks Thank for you. being here the day before Thanksgiving. For oh, sure. So can you, yeah, could you tell us about the event, Molly? Like, yeah, what, definitely. What is Stain Power? And, and... Um, well, I'll let Dante speak a little more to the year-long exchange that led up to this. But pretty much um, on Saturday, December 7th from 6 to 9 p.m. at Ypsilanti High School, we're going to have a one-night-only show. It's a kind of a co- combination of poetry, mostly spoken word, but there's also theatrical elements, film components, music. Um, and it's all done by young people from Ipsy in Richmond, California. And we've been working on it for about a year. It's going to be really beautiful. It's focused on issues of housing justice, racial justice, gentrification, belonging. Um, and it's just really a group of, try- we're trying to center youth of color voices in both communities as agents of change and really to be like taken seriously at the forefront of these movements for housing justice. So that is the goal of it. Um, just a couple of details, or I'll come back at the end and tell you guys how you can get your tickets. And well, you can also, like you can say it now. And we okay. can say it at the end, end again. Okay, cool. Um, so the show itself is going to be 6.30 to 8.30, but we are planning on selling out. So doors open at 6. We encourage people to get there by 6 or maybe even before if you want to get tickets. Or you can buy them online. Um, you can go to Neutral Zone's website, and on their calendar, you'll be able to get to the ticket link. Tickets are $5 for youth 21 and under, 15 for adults 22 and up, 45 for VIP all ages. And we are giving free tickets out to any teens that attend Ypsilanti High School, since that's where we're doing the show. No one will be turned away for, like, lack of funds, so people can email me, molly, at neutral-zone.org if there's an issue with being able to purchase a ticket. Um, really, we want the community to come out, and we're anticipating a sellout, so we want people to get their tickets in advance. Oh, it's going to be a great event, a great community event. Um, Dante, can you tell us about what's gone into this year-long uh, project? Um, so... Molly had the opportunity to bring some young folks from Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, mostly from Ypsilanti, all the way out there to the Richmond, California, where I'm from, um, to meet with some young people out there at the Rise Youth Center that's uh, putting on a showcase back this past May about gentrification in Richmond, California. And so for Ypsilanti to come out there to Richmond to see the experiences that young people are going through is pretty much a sister program of like two young um, organizations talking about this is what's going on in our community, and this is what we like to see happen. So them coming out there to California to see how we was talking about it out there, and now we're bringing young folks from Richmond, California out here. So what went on during this past year was Skypes, uh, emails of folks talking about poems and ideas and putting together this show, um, visiting community gardens, uh, talking to elders in the community, getting the history of the cities that we live in, and just the backstory of what used to be a black-owned community and how folks get systematically pushed out. And so a lot of those discussions happened throughout the year between both parties, and now we're bringing Richmond, California out here to talk about that on Ypsilanti High School stage. And, and using art as activism. Yes. 
And and so can can you talk a little bit about that, Dante? This uh, this idea of art as activism and and yeah, the youth voices. Art has always been the revolutionary factor in every decade, in every in every struggle. It's always been an artist that voiced what needs to happen. Always been an artist that spoke on uh, the voice of the people. Um, was visionaries can see the future. So if you can see it, you can be it. And so it's up to the artist to see what needs to change and then speak that change into existence so the world can follow suit. And these young people, they're doing it. They've been making art, poems, <laughs> spoken word, theatrical performance. They've been working really hard um, for the last several months, and so we really want people to come out and support them. They're incredible artists. We just had a great rehearsal with them last night, and they're so excited about this. I also want to quickly just shout out our partners. Is that okay? Um, Ozone House is our like core partner on this, so we've been working like very closely with them and a lot of other Ipsy orgs like Growing Hope, Defend Affordable Ipsy, Riverside Art Center has provided the space for us to do all of our meetings and rehearsals and the National Endowment for the Arts funded all of this. Um, so we got like a grant to make this year-long cultural exchange happen. And we are going to continue staying power. This is going to become a weekly workshop open to all young people in Ipsy for poetry, um, hip-hop, music, everything like that. We don't know the day and time yet, but starting next semester, we're going to expand it beyond the kids that we're working with right now. Oh, brilliant. And will some of those, will some of the people involved right now, will they be leaders as it expands yeah. and be part of? They will be the leaders of it. Oh. So we'll just be the adults in the background supporting them. Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> um, so staying power, concrete, not wood, mm -hmm. December 7th. Could you tell us a bit more of the details, Molly, yep. before so we go? So Saturday, December 7th, 6 to 9 p.m. at Ipsy High. Um, the show itself is 6.30 to 8.30, but doors open at 6, and we encourage people to get there by 6 or maybe even 5.45 or to buy their tickets in advance because we plan to sell out. Um, the tickets are $5 for youth, 21 and under, 15 for adults, 22 and up, 45 for VIP. You can buy them at Neutral Zone. You can buy them at the door. You can buy them online at Neutral Zone's website. And no and one will be turned away. No one will be turned away for lack of funds, funds. yeah. Molly, Dante, thank, it's, thank you so much for coming down to the studio for to sure. talk today um, and hope to talk again soon. Um, staying power, concrete, not wood. Um, today, Molly Rayner for Neutral Zone and Dante Clark, Artistic Director of Staying Power, Concrete, Not Wood. I'm T. Hetzel. We're going to take a short break and then come back to hear Jonathan Safran for um, tape September 19th uh, earlier this fall. Thank you. For sure. Good afternoon and welcome to Living Writers. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel and I'm so happy to have Jonathan Safran for here in the studio. We're taping the show. It's September 19th, 2019. Welcome back, Jonathan. Thank you. It's it's great to still be a living writer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Amen to that. <laughs> um, I 
think the last time you were here, it was for Here I Am. Yeah. Um, 2015? Jonathan, something no, like some, that. Something like that. Something like that, yeah. How have you been? <laughs> I've been okay. Um, I'll tell you, it doesn't feel like it's been three or four years. It feels like it was just the other day. And um, as we might have discussed, I can't remember, um, last time I had a radio show in college. Yes. Yeah. And so it feels really good to be back in the mix of things like this. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming back and know that you're always welcome anytime. Thank you very much. Even just call in, you know, if you want to, Jonathan. Absolutely. Um, But the reason for the visit now is we are the weather is out. Saving the planet begins at breakfast out with FSG. Thanks to Jeff for sending along the book. Um, So, oh, you know what? Let's I'll read your bio. (laughs) We'll start there. Jonathan Safran Foer is the author of the novels Everything is Illuminated, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and Here I Am, and of the nonfiction book Eating Animals. His work has received numerous awards and has been translated into 36 languages. He lives in Brooklyn, New York. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm breathing the same air as Caesar. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's um, the first chapter of the book. Um, no spoiler here, talks about what you just said, this revelation I had when I was a kid. It um, wasn't a personal revelation. It was something that I read in a book that I used to carry around with me and I used to love. Um, and it was the book of the end of things? What was the name of the well, title? Well, I thought it was or called the, the Book of Endings. Book, okay. And when I wrote the first draft of this book, I referred to it as the Book of Endings. Mm-hmm. Then when I was going back and fact-checking various things. I realized there was no Book of Endings. It was... I don't even remember what it was called, Panati's Extraordinary Book of the Endings of Everything, something like that. Um, And then that itself became part of the first chapter, this way that we can misremember or mistitle, misidentify. And that's also a thread that runs throughout the book because far later on, maybe in part four or five, you are um, returning to your childhood home, your school, and everything was like out of skew. Yeah. The scale scale, of everything. Even emotionally. Exactly. Um, Have you ever had the experience of going back to your childhood home? Not, not when a great, like a lot of time has passed. It was more, you know, a couple of years after we moved. Yeah. Um, It's a really strange experience. It's really mysterious. They have all these ideas of what it, will be like all of these like very certain memories of what it was. Um, I talk about in the book, this, um, an artist who uh, calls herself a God, what the hell was it? A forensic archaeologist, like a really exhaustive, very highly specific interview. Like, okay, you walk in, uh, is the ground carpeted? Is it a wood floor? Is it tile? What colors the carpet about how thick is the pile? Um, was there any kind of welcome mat on the inside or only on the outside? What was on the walls when you walk in your house? Look to your left, look to your right. What do you see? And we just walked through in my mind, my childhood home like that. And she did the same, as I said, for my brothers. And then she created these, um, floor plans, blueprints of the homes as we remembered them. And the discrepancies were just incredible. Like not only simple things like um, the scale of different rooms, the relative scale, but even like how many floors there were. It's really wild. And, and we it's not as if we lived there for a few months. We lived right. there for years. Yeah. 
But then, as 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 you were just suggesting, also the emotional scale can be completely out of whack. I thought I had assumed that going back to my childhood home would be really emotional and a really deep experience, and it wasn't. It was just sort of interesting to me, and I was happy enough to leave. After 10 minutes or so, I yeah. think you said. Yeah. yeah, and I read about that in the context of thinking about Earth as home. Yes. And how much that matters to us. You know, it's there are a lot of things about climate change where we assume they matter a great deal to us. And then as it turns out, as evidenced by um, how much time we actually think about these things, how much we talk about them, but even most importantly, what we do in response – it would suggest we, we they're not that important to us after all. And what do we do with that? You know, what happens if climate change um, isn't actually that important to us? Not I don't mean in the sense of rhetoric. I don't mean in the sense of attending marches or when having a conversation about it, what you might say, but just in our daily lives and in the choices that we make. And in your, your book... Um you reveal that there are some changes that are, which would be supremely challenging, but yet still within our, our reach. And you build up to that. Um, I thought it was so interesting how you talk about Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth, and I think the sequel to An Even More Inconvenient Truth or so, and your experience watching it, and then the frustration of the end of the film and the, the sort of the action items or non-action items and one of them being recommend the film yeah. <laughs> and watch it. It's like this endless loop perhaps of the, the film. Um, uh, whereas it seems like uh, you could, and it's, it's interesting because the book is how you're building it. It seems to me is, is, is quite lovely because there's these pieces that, come back much later on and you don't solve the the Al Gore you you sort of present it as he doesn't say the hardest thing to do but then neither do you there until later in the structure of the book um can you talk a little bit about um well you, what your prescript what you believe he should have said at that time in the film is one of the things to do and also why you built the book like that sure so I, I think it's important to just make absolutely clear that it's not my prescription. It's not my idea of what it is that we can do. This is all totally uncontroversial, unambiguous science. It's like, like the acknowledgments, like the climate, yeah. climate scientists that you worked close. Yeah. I mean, we can, you know, we can choose not to believe in science, whatever that even means. But I don't think any listeners of this would choose that. And in fact, virtually no Americans would choose that anymore. 91% of Americans um, acknowledge the existence of human-caused climate change. So there, it, it's not – there's sometimes an impression that the country is sort of evenly split between those who um, believe in the science and those who don't. And it's really not. That's not the problem that we have anymore. It may have been the problem that we had in the past, but it's not anymore. So um, what does the science say? The science says <coughs> the science says there are four things that um, we can do as individuals that are high impact you know it's good to recycle it's good not to use plastic straws it's good to buy a hybrid but those aren't high impact activities the four high impact activities are flying less living car free um, having fewer babies 
and eating a plant-based diet. So um, 85% of Americans drive to work. And a lot of our cities, I think like Ann Arbor, were designed to require a car of most people. And certainly Detroit. Yeah. Um, more than half the flights that are taken in the United States are either for work or for non-leisure personal purposes, like visiting a sick relative. Most people are not in the process of deciding whether or not to have another kid in any given moment. So those are three things that we need to do less of, without a doubt. But it's not as easy as, I'm going to start today, okay. you know? Um, but eating is different. And eating is a choice that we make three times a day. And it's, I think most people would say it's the choice is unconstrained. There's certainly like social situations where it might feel constrained and those might be exceptions to how, how we should think about it. But generally speaking, we eat what we want to eat. And um, of those four high impact activities, only eating animals um, immediately, only meat eating, excuse me, immediately addresses methane and nitrous oxide, which are the two most powerful greenhouse gases. Methane is about 86 times as powerful as carbon, and um, nitrous oxide is about 310 times as powerful. And when I say powerful, what I mean is, you know, greenhouse gases act sort of like a blanket around the planet, and they hold some of the heat that should be reflecting back into space off the surface of the earth. They hold it against the earth. And, you know, imagine carbon is like a bedsheet, um, and methane is like a blanket that's 86 times as thick, and nitrous oxide is uh, 310 times as thick. And that matters because we're approaching this moment of runaway climate change where, you know, you've probably heard people at the on the news or in the UN's most recent reports, the IPCC reports, saying we have until this date to, to solve climate change. And that's what they mean. They mean that we will reach a point at which we can't undo a process that's been set in motion. Um, one of the most important kinds of um, positive feedback loops that would contribute to runaway climate change is called the albedo effect, which is basically that white things reflect sunlight and dark things absorb it. So um, as white ice melts into dark water, the water is going to absorb more of the heat, which will warm the oceans, which will melt more ice, which will, again, make the oceans warmer and make it impossible to stop the melting of the ice. So um, eating meat is a very, very powerful place to begin. Um, as the IPCC said in its most recent report, even if we do everything else that we're talking about in terms of moving away from fossil fuels, we can't um, meet the goals of the Paris Climate Accords unless we dramatically reduce our meat consumption. And so what does that mean to dramatically reduce? I should say not just meat, but animal products as well. Um, right. That's important. The dairy, the yeah, eggs, the yeah. cheese. Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> unfortunately the plot thickens in that way. <laughs> so the most comprehensive analysis of the relationship between animal products and the climate was published at the end of last year in Nature magazine. And what they what the study concluded was that while people who live in um, undernourished parts of the world who don't have enough to eat could afford to eat a little bit more meat and dairy, um, people who live in America, the United Kingdom, Europe, have to reduce our meat consumption by 90%. 
and our um, dairy consumption by 60%, which is a lot. You know, 90% is a lot of 100, and 60% is pretty big too. So that's intimidating. And it's also a little bit confusing. You know, how do you reduce something by 60 or 90%? Are you supposed to have a calculator with you when you order food? Are you supposed to keep a meal diary? These are things I don't want to do. Um, So what I propose in the book as a way to sort of simplify that prescription is not to eat animal products for breakfast and lunch. And then for dinner, you eat the dinner that you're going to eat. Whereas my friend um, uh, Samin Nostrat, uh, you ever seen Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat on Netflix? Yes, yeah. yeah. She's just wonderful. It's so like such a pleasure to watch and be around. But she is attempting to do this now as well. And she says um, oh. vegan vegan for daylight, <laughs> which is her, her you know, yeah. nifty way of describing it. And then it. when the evening comes. You do what you're going to do. Your, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, if you can do more, you will be doing more. You know, if people who can go all the way, um, we'll be contributing that much more. But, you know, for some people, breakfast and lunch is going to sound like a, a lot, really extreme perhaps. challenge. Yeah. Um, and so you're, so you're not the in- inventor of like the, the idea of like the, the meat part of this, but you are of this idea of suggesting breakfast and lunch. Um, I'm actually not the first person who suggested that either. Um, And I'm certainly not the inventor of the science. These are things we've known for decades, Mm -hmm. decades. And they haven't been, um, you know, they they haven't been promoted by a lot of environmentalists, but they haven't been kept a secret either. But And this is part of your book and part of your mission, I think, is to be talking about it. Yeah, just to correct a record, you know. And to get others talking about it in their conversations. Yeah, we've our, our attention has been fixed on fossil fuels, which makes the problem and the solution feel really far away. And a lot of people now are feeling... Um, I think like a low-level depression about climate change and at the very least a kind of alienation, you know, from everybody else and from ourselves. I did a reading at a high school in Boston yesterday and I spoke to several hundred really cool, impressive teenagers. And one of them asked me, are you, um, oh God, what was the word he said? Not skeptical. Um, Crap, I can't remember the word. What's it called when you like when you don't trust somebody? Um, hmm. Oh no, does anyone Andrew, Michelle? Are you skeptical sounds right. Okay. No? Nah, it's deeper, it's more than skeptical. It's like um Oh man, it's it's oh, a very, think... very common word that we both know. Oh jeez. It's uh, been that kind of a week though. Yeah. We... Oh with a C? With a C. Cynical. Cynical. <laughs> yeah. There it is. Yeah. Are you cynical? And goodbye with a little help from my strangers. Are you um uh are you cynical about our leaders? Are you cynical mm. about adults? Right. And what I said to him is, are you cynical about yourself? You know, we're so used to like offloading the responsibility to yeah. saying when somebody else does it, then the, then we will begin this march toward a solution. And he said, no, I'm not cynical about myself. Um, he said, I can change. You know, We've gotten so used to the idea that we can't change. It's really sad. And you can see it in a million different places. And unfortunately, you now see it from 
people that uh, I wish were saying other things, like a lot of the Democratic um, hopefuls for the presidency, will talk exclusively about the need for systemic change. We do need systemic change. Individuals cannot do this alone. But individuals um, can make a difference and with the difference that they make and the changes of their daily behaviors can push the system to change as well. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Let's pick up there. Today on the program, Jonathan Safran Forrest here. We are the weather. Saving the planet begins at breakfast. Out with FSG now. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Reverend Andrew behind the glass and Michelle Pernia, a studio audience. We'll be back. Yeah, when I was only 17, I could hear the angels whispering. So I drove into the woods and wandered aimlessly about until I heard my mother shouting through the fog. It turned out to be the howling of a dog or a wolf to be exact. The sound sent shivers down my back, but I was drawn into the pack and before long. They allowed me to join in and sing their song So from the cliffs and higher still Yeah, we would gladly get our fill Howling endlessly and shrilly at the dawn And I lost the taste for judging right from wrong For my flesh had turned to fur Yeah, and my thoughts they surely were Turned to instinct and obedience to God Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on Living Writers, Jonathan Safran Four is here. We are the weather. Saving the planet begins at breakfast. So politics and being individually responsible, not feeling cynical and thinking, well, maybe it needs to be the oil companies or another Paris Accord or... um, I mean, it does need to be the oil companies and it does need to be the Paris Accord, but I don't, do you see these things happening? I don't. No, they they feel like they're unraveling. Everything just keeps getting loosened. California is being attacked for emissions. So Um, how do we force the issue? How do we finally make things happen? Um, You know, the Amazon is burning. A lot of people are, I've never, I haven't met someone who isn't very upset about it. Right. and what form does that emotion usually take or how does it express itself? Often anger, anger at Bolsonaro, mm. maybe anger at Trump. Um, 91% of the Amazon's burning is for the is for animal agriculture, either to create land for animals to graze or to create land to grow crops for animals. To eat. Yeah. yeah so they are doing this for us. Like we are signing the checks that create the burning. Um, I cannot imagine a global boycott of beef, but let's just imagine it for fun. Um, if there were a global boycott of beef, we would protect the Amazon forever. It's exactly that simple. It's no more complicated than that. No one would have to pass any laws. Um, we wouldn't have to wait for leaders who are unlikely to do anything substantial anytime soon. That having been said, 
there isn't going to be a global boycott of beef. And what would be really helpful is if the government would enact uh, regulations to make beef cost what it ought to cost rather than what it seems to cost at the cash register. You know, if a hamburger costs $25 instead of $1, we would eat a lot less of it. So what we need is both of these things happening in partnership. We need to push the government to regulate meat. And when they regulate meat, they will be pushing us to eat less of it, which will make it easier for these collective actions to occur. Collective action. So um, you mentioned earlier, too, that sometimes we're waiting to see what the other other person is going to do before we are ready to act. Um, in We Are the Weather, you also talk about how important um, a message and a story can be in order to spur collective action um, using the civil rights story with Rosa Parks, um, because there was another woman who first refused to move on the bus. Yeah, a woman named Claudette Colvin, who was quite a bit younger, was a teenager, um, came from a, you can't see me making air quotes on the radio, <laughs> yeah, but a, I, just, I attest to the air quotes. Yeah, okay, a bad <laughs> family, um, and was pregnant with the child of a married man. And the NAACP decided that um, she wouldn't be the best spokesperson for this movement. Um, that, and for this action. And for this action, right. And um, it was probably a wise choice. You know, the, the way that we tell stories matters. Um, the heroes that we choose for our stories matter. There's a reason why Greta Thunberg has excited everybody's imagination. Um, it's not because she's saying anything new. She's not at all. There have been many, many people who have said exactly the same things. She's just saying it better. You know, she's saying it more effectively. She's saying it in a way that grabs our attention, that is not ignorable, that uh, moves us. You know, I am very moved every time she speaks. I find her to be incredibly captivating. Um, so she is a, a, a wonderful testament to the power of the messenger and the power of storytelling. And that's something that I write about quite a bit in this book. How can we find better ways of talking about this that reveal, first of all, our um, ability to change, the power of individual change, the power of collective change, but also that this isn't, this isn't at all a political issue. It's just not. It's, it's presented that way because politics now is a zero-sum game where for anyone to accomplish anything, it requires somebody else losing. Um, 70% of Americans wanted to stay in the Paris Climate Accords, including a majority of Republicans. This is just not a Democrat versus Republican issue. It's not a liberal versus conservative issue. Conservatives don't care about the planet more than liberal, don't care about the planet less than liberals do. They don't care about their children less than liberals do. But they also don't want to feel demeaned. They don't want to feel that they're um, considered stupid or evil or ignorant. And unfortunately, that's that has been the um, implied rhetoric anyway of the left. I've done it myself. You know, I have blamed, uh, you know, the ignorant uh, red staters for not accepting the science of climate change. They do accept mm -hmm. the science of climate change. Mm -hmm. And worse, I have a bigger carbon footprint than most of them, you know. So what we need to look at is not the sort of um, – political identifiers or the social identifiers like vegan or meat eater, but instead 
um, the shared values at the, at the beginning of these conversations, and then the desire to make progress rather than to point out each other's hypocrisies or shortcomings. Um, we've been measuring our distance from this like unattainable ethical perfection. A lot of liberals have been doing this rather than from doing nothing. And, and because of that, we would rather do nothing than do something. And I, I feel as though in We Are the Weather, you return to that as well, like this idea of do something. That's why it's the daily um, at, at breakfast or even at the grocery store when you're choosing what you're going to buy. Well, like, do something and make sure it's an important something. You know, not all somethings are equal. And that's there also, is, yeah, I think it's a title. <laughs> yeah, there's a risk of indulging our feelings you know, rather than changing the planet or working toward a solution. Um, sometimes, you know, watching MSNBC, it can feel like you're doing something against Trump if, if you are a, a Democrat. Um, attending a climate march is doing something, but it can feel like it's doing more than it's actually doing. Um, even saying somebody has to do something can be mistaken for doing something. And, you know, knowledge in and of itself isn't virtuous. And even caring in and of itself isn't virtuous. Doing something is virtuous. Our grandkids will not look back and say, gosh, I wonder what they felt. You know, they'll say, they'll say what did they do? That's what they'll ask, what did they do? Um, so that this is a shift that we really need to collectively make when addressing climate change away from feelings and toward uh, actions. And so again, these actions can be, it can take place on the day-to-day. -day. And you're also very clear about you can fail or you will fail in a way. And you do this by um, uh, including your own vulnerability and, uh, and also the thing where you recommit to it. And it's like that struggle to try to make the choice. Like there's something in the making of the choice in the moment that is something that is valuable to you. Even the language of you might fail is not, if it's not exactly right. Like you might fail in this, in what sense that you're not batting a thousand. Yeah. Like um, it's like no more meat for me or yeah. no more. I won't put milk in anything or, you know, like these, like, and then you do. Right. So a different or way of looking at that is you, you, might, or... you might succeed most of the time. You know? Yes. Yeah. Like there's a little part in the book that takes the form of a dialogue sort of between me and myself. And in one part, I, I am saying, gosh, I find it really <laughs> hard to be a vegetarian. I found it harder as time has passed. It's How could that possibly be? I wrote a book about vegetarianism. I talked about it publicly for you know a couple of years. And now I'm writing this book about the relationship between meat and climate change. And I still find it tricky. And the other voice says, well, like how often, how many times have you eaten meat in the last 10 years? And I say, I don't know, 10 maybe. And the voice says, so you're batting, you know, nine, nine, 98, nine, 97, whatever it is. He says, maybe the question is, why has it been so easy? Not why has it been so hard? And it's a reorientation away from measuring failure to measuring success. And for this section, dispute with the soul, how did how did that part um, occur to you, and why in the arc and momentum of the book, what role do you see it playing? 
Um, it occurred to me largely because, you know, the book begins with the description of the first ever suicide note, or the first known suicide note, which was written about 4,000 years ago in ancient Egypt. And it is titled Dispute with the Soul of One Who is Tired of Life. And it, it's a really weird document that careens from like poetry to argument to a dispute. And so that was very much on my mind as I was writing. And I was just having this dispute with myself. This book, more than any other book I've written, totally including novels, is a record of my thinking. Um, and that that dialogue chapter, that dispute chapter, is pretty much, I was pretty much taking dictation of uh, creating a real-time record of an argument in my mind. So obviously I'm a writer and I edited this, you know, artifact and wanted to give it a shape and wanted it to be accessible and wanted it to do something. But it really was a record of a back and forth that I was having. And was it, when you were drafting this, was it something that um, was in like a, a session, like when you were typing in your grandmother's room or uh, when your youngest boy is going to sleep? Or was it something that this dialogue is continuing? So parts would be happening as you were walking around in your day to day. And then you would know this is part of it. No, I really sat down and wrote it. Okay. I, I'm not the kind of person who thinks a lot when he's not writing. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't walk down the street having arguments with myself. I walk down the street thinking, sunny, hungry, things like that, you know? Um, I don't have much of an interior monologue, much less an interior dialogue. And, um, but when I write, I create a context for thought. And that's one of the things that I most value about writing and about reading. Reading is the exact same um, kind of thing. So is a conversation, by the way. Uh, you know, if we weren't sitting down and having this conversation, neither of us would be having these kinds of thoughts. It's, that sounds like tautological or obvious, but it, it's not. Um, it's a reason to be grateful for conversations and grateful for, you know, the books that we get to read and write. But I, I was, no, I was sitting down and concentrating on this, on these questions. In the book, you, you write that writing the book changed you have it noted somewhere, but I can't find the actual. It sounds about right. Does, does that sound <laughs> I right? You. Am, I, yeah. am I quoting, quoting um, I'm pretty sure I yeah. said it didn't change me. <laughs> no, wait, it did. Wait, yes, hold, it oh, did. oh, you did. Oh, okay. Yeah. God, my sense of humor is like. Well, I think, you're on the spot. You know, I, you know the, we are the weather. This reading the book has. So now I'm going to throw we are the weather under the bus for a moment mm. because it has changed me too by being a reader. Like as you were saying, that's the, the power of books, right? So the ideas and being with your ideas for this amount of time, um, even on the walk here to the radio station, because um, it is a beautiful, pretty day, sunny, mm. the breeze, right? Walking past Hopcat, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could do this while we were having a beer? Yeah. You know? Oh, and my I was God. Like, that sounds great. Doesn't it? And no. then, but then I was like, this is a place that sells a lot of burgers. Well, there's, not, the, there's nothing that, wrong with it being well, a place that sells a lot of burgers. <laughs> and now it sounds like I'm just throwing everyone under the bus yeah. left and right. Now, yeah. uh, you know, a uh, Hopcat. But it just, but it, that's what I mean. It's like that level of thinking, like maybe by making choices to go to different places, even the culture changes in some ways. 
maybe I don't but want that place extreme. to go. I don't want that yeah. place to go out of business. What I would no. want is <laughs> to say to them, "You guys make amazing food. You love food. You make people so happy with the food that you make." Here's the deal: like we live in this planet, we have this situation right now. It seems that you're good at doing what you do, which is not just making burgers, but making food. Can you imagine like adjusting the menu to take the emphasis off of burgers? You don't have to stop selling burgers, as nice as that might be to imagine. Um, could we switch the defaults? That's really what we have to do. You know, right now you go into a restaurant and they say, here are the specials for tonight and here's the vegetarian option. What we need is not to like pry the hamburgers from the cold, dead hands of carnivores, but to live in a world in which you go to a restaurant and they say, here are the specials tonight and here's the meat option. And if people want to eat meat on that occasion, good, go for it. That's that's your thing. Um, but if we could have these structures in place that just make the expectations different and make it easier you know, to eat vegetarian um, or to eat less meat um, is a better way to put it, then, then that would solve the problem. So I'm very wary of thinking of anyone as you know, the bad guy here, the factory farming industry is a, is a bad actor. There's no question about that. But the people who are selling these burgers at this neighborhood place are not factory farmers. They're just, just people trying to make good food for, you know, that people will enjoy. So if we can have the conversation that isn't attacking them, but is like, hey, we're on the same team. Obviously, we're on the same team here. Obviously. How can we, how can we figure this out? I think that could be productive. Let's take a short break, and then we come back more with Jonathan Safran for We Are the Weather, Saving the Planet Begins at Breakfast. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers, and we'll be back. If you're just tuning in, really happy that you did. Jonathan Safran Four is here. We are the weather saving the planet begins at breakfast. Um, and we were just talking about burgers. <laughs> among other things. <laughs> among other things. Yeah. Um, so for when we're we're talking about well, and we also earlier talked about the earth as home and uh and also um not really believing perhaps like the 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 disbelief of something 
that we know to be true, because even if we are, we're trying hard to understand or grapple with some of the facts, um, facts that you include in We Are the Weather, um, sections that are difficult to read. Um, how, I, I think it was lovely how you talk about the astronauts going to the moon and, and not necessarily that the landing on the moon was the thing, but it was looking back at the home planet or in these moments or the first photographs that showed the whole, like the blue marble or, or so. Um, it's hard to know how to make, cause there's something that you need to spur the action, right? Jonathan, uh, to, to, cause you know it. Well, we're used right? to the idea but, that there has to be something to spur okay, the action. Okay. And I think a lot of us are waiting for that moment of like emotional revelation, um, which we have sometimes. It, it does come, you know, like, as I said, watching Greta Thunberg speak elicits that kind of feeling in some people. And or these super storms that are attacking the coastline or... Sometimes, or, yeah. Know. As they get increasingly common, um, which is to say dangerous, and when we should, precisely when we should be feeling the most, there's a risk that the frequency of them numbs us to them. Um, if you're not experiencing them, like if you're on the other side of the country, for example, if it's a hurricane right, or, or right. the although, fires on the West. Although oddly enough, people who have survived an extreme weather event mm -hmm. are afterwards less likely to believe that it was because of climate change um, because they have so many incentives to want to – it's kind of American idea to just like rebuild where right. you are. Like we're not going to be defeated by this and understand it as – Miami Beach. Yeah. It's like, well, not that. Yeah. To understand it as chance, you know, rather than a logical progression that we can actually to some extent anticipate. Um, you know, when you want to – when you go into a store and there's something that you like and you decide you're going to get it. What do you do? You pay for it, right? Why do you pay for it and not shoplift? It's it's not because you have a moment of emotional revelation where you say, the social contract, a beautiful thing. I'm a member of this civilization, of this society, um, this local community, and I want to do the right thing. You don't have to do that. Because it's, it's the default convention. Yeah, it's what convention. we do. It's just what people do. Um, it's, it's hard to change the default. It's hard to change norms. Um, if you just think about the inconvenience in your life, it's a hell of a lot more inconvenient to have to pay for things than to not eat animal products, you know, for breakfast and lunch, but we don't even give it a second thought. We're so absolutely used to it. There's all kinds of cravings, primitive cravings that we say no to repress, forget about, ignore constantly, constantly. And it's not a huge sacrifice or burden. We're not martyrs for because we don't, you know, punch everyone who annoys us or <laughs> pursue relationships with anybody we find attractive. Not even relationships, but relations. Um, it's wrong, you know. And we don't have to be reminded that it's wrong every time the situation arises. We're just adults, and this is what adult human beings do. With food, it's as if we've mistaken ourselves for lions. You know, like we see it, we want it, let's have it. Um, if you were a lion, then your obligations would end with wanting it, but we're not lions, we're humans. And in the year 2019, we're informed humans, and we know that 
there is a cause and effect, you know, to, to these choices. Um, you know, there's a temptation to look at climate change either as we are doomed or we're going to be fine. Um, really smart people seem to even divide into those two positions, most of them, and we are doomed. And um, we're not doomed and we're not going to be fine. We're at the beginning of this process of profound loss. Some of the loss has been determined, but most of it hasn't. Um, and it will be determined by how we behave, what we do. Um, we're going to lose a lot of the Amazon, but it matters how much we lose. If we lose 10, 50, or 100%, we're going to lose a lot of the coral reefs. We're going to lose a bunch of um, coastal cities. We're going to lose a lot of lives to climate-related diseases and droughts. We're going to lose a lot of um, California's forests to fires. We're going to lose a lot of the ice sheets. But it matters how much we lose. It makes a huge difference if we lose a little or a lot. Um, so we want to make sure that we lose as little as we can. And we have control over how much we will lose. But we can't, we can't excuse ourselves. You know, people who say we are doomed don't include themselves in the we. Like they're always, it's an amorphous we, the other we. Right. Um, and they're going to be dead by then, we. Yeah. Yeah. Even if they have children. Because I think um, also a thread running through this, uh, we are the weather, at least it surfaces a few times, Jonathan, is the, uh, the New York Times article, which I think is the title is something like we are doomed. And uh, something like that. Something. I can't remember. Yeah. And, and you are sort of in conversation. It just comes back. Mm. Uh, this is a piece by Roy Scranton, who's a really smart writer. He's a great writer. Um, and I take issue with a lot of things he says, but I'm really glad he exists as well. And he's a, r a really important voice in contributing to how we think about climate change. And he takes a very philosophical approach about you know, raising children. I think it's called raising children in a doomed world. Maybe that's what it was. Um, and, you know, as I say, better than teaching your child how to um, cope with uh, a doomed world would be to teach your child how to avoid the doomed world and the power of our choices um, individually and collectively. And with the power of choices, you introduce the idea because this is con to conceptualize something is is more difficult than if it's in the present moment with you right and so you, but you look to the past you look to world war ii and um what folks did in the u.s on the home front um as well as acknowledging um d-day and what people were doing over um on the on the front um so this idea of if we can turn out the lights, if we can do this, these things will help. We can contribute. Um, and so turning out sacrifice. the lights is actually a metaphor. Um, I mean, turning out our lights is also probably a good oh. thing to do, but it's not a hugely important thing to do. I was talking about how during the war, citizens in coastal cities would turn off their lights at night. Um, Potentially for U-boats or yeah, to get a marker to, on. To but, prevent U-boats from being yeah. able to use their the, the backlighting. Um and I, and I talk about um, what it means to sacrifice, you know. There's actually, if we have a second, there's a beautiful little passage that's, I say beautiful because I didn't write it. This is FDR gave um, a, a fireside chat um, 
in 1942, um, where he spoke to citizens by through their radios about what was going to be expected of regular citizens and how they could participate. It's impossible to imagine a leader giving such a talk now. And I don't mean Trump. I mean any of the Democratic hopefuls either to speak so frankly about what's going to be required. And this is what he said. Not all of us can have the privilege of fighting our enemies in distant parts of the world. Not all of us can have the privilege of working in a munitions factory or a shipyard or on the farms or in oil fields or mines, producing the weapons or the raw materials that are needed by our armed forces. But there is one front and one battle where everyone in the United States, every man, woman, and child is in action and will be privileged to remain in action throughout the war. That front is right here at home, in our daily lives and in our daily tasks. Here at home, everyone will have the privilege of making whatever self-denial is necessary, not only to supply our fighting men, but to keep the economic structure of our country fortified and secure during the war and after the war. This will require, of course, the abandonment not only of luxuries, but of many other creature comforts. Every loyal American is aware of his individual responsibility. As I told the Congress yesterday, sacrifice is not exactly the proper word with which to describe this program of self-denial. When, at the end of this great struggle, we shall have saved our free way of life, we shall have made no sacrifice. And um, we've become so used to thinking about what's ahead of us as these acts of martyrdom that will be required of us or these acts of really profound diminishment of quality of life, sacrifice. And um, first of all, it's not going to feel that way. If we, if we are able to save the planet, we're not going to look back and say, God, those years were hard. <laughs> we're going to say, look at what we proved ourselves to be capable of. But also a lot of these changes... Um, will feel good. You know, they're going to feel really good. Um, you know, if you imagine like the best steak you've ever eaten in your life, the pleasure of that meal ended when you swallowed the last bite. The pleasure of a meal does not extend beyond the last bite. If anything, you start to feel bad after the last bite with a lot of foods that are good. Um, but the pleasure of being oneself of being the person that you imagine yourself to be and want to be, the pleasure of acting on your values. Um, it's not as immediate and it's not as primitive as a culinary pleasure, but I think it's deeper and I think it is um, more um, sustained. Um, you know, imagine if Detroit were to become the first carbon neutral city in the country. That would require a lot of its citizens. Um, it would require saying no to a lot of things that, you're used to and enjoy or part of identity. Yeah. Yeah. It would require some shifts in identity, but how would it feel? You know, if Detroit were capable of that, if every other country in the city looked to Detroit and said, how can we be more like that? If mayors of other cities looked to the mayor of Detroit and said, teach us your, your model. If you saw Detroit on the front page of the New York times with the headline, you know, first carbon neutral city in the world, my guess is that despite whatever process brought you there, you'd be happier than you are now. You know, it would be a kind of pride and even exhilaration. The fact of it being a difficult process would, would not only not diminish that good feeling at the end, it would explain the good feeling at the end. Because what you're talking about, Jonathan, is really this feeling of being more human. What we, I think, might 
think of as being human. I think so too, and in a couple of different senses. One is to go back to the lion that we were talking、exactly. about before. <laughs> you know, to be human is to have these minds that are complicated and capable of wrestling with conflicting impulses. You know, when I see a hamburger, I have an impulse to eat it. I'm a vegetarian. But that doesn't mean I don't want to eat it. I have an impulse to eat it. I think it looks good. I think it smells good, and I know for sure it would taste good. But I have other impulses too, and weighing those impulses, frustrating as that sometimes is,、um, is the essence of of being a human being. Holding contradictory ideas in our minds, contradictory impulses, using reason to wrestle down instinct, or allowing instinct to.、Um, Take precedence over reason, which is sometimes a great thing to do as well. But having the fullness of that internal conversation、um, makes us our fullest selves. And so it isn't a sacrifice. Connecting back to what you read、um, from FDR,、mm. it, it isn't a sacrifice. It's it's a building. It's a It's not. It's it's an opportunity, but it's not. But that makes too light of it. Yeah, I mean that has been my experience,、um, and it's the experience of everybody I know who has、um, made chose not to have something that they wanted for um, um, in order to participate in something bigger. I mean. Have you ever said no to something you wanted because of a greater belief? Can you think of a specific example? I know you're the interviewer, but no, it's. I would love to, but we've got the sports folks right、oh, outside the door, and so I yeah, 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 yeah. can't think of a real thing right now. Forget it. But, <laughs> no, but don't, because、yeah. we are the weather. Is like, don't forget it. Like.、Um, Jonathan, let's.、Uh, will you call in and read some of the book over the wire to us? Because we've to. only heard FDR's words, and、um, I've loved this conversation with you、Me、today.、Um, and、uh, and our time now is is over. But too bad. <laughs> but to be continued, right? I hope to be so. Continued. Yeah. yeah. We are the weather. Saving the planet begins at breakfast. Jonathan Safran for today on Living Writers.、Um, thanks for listening. Until next time.
right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3 WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Alex Shee, and you are listening to the Daily Sports Report here on WCBN. It's a special day here. Not only are we joined by David Kramer and Ryan Buckman, our two regulars, but we're also joined by Professor Andre Markovitz a distinguished distinguished member of our political science and sociology departments here at U of M. And it's the day before Thanksgiving. We are going to talk about the game of games, the rivalry of rivalries, the Michigan versus Ohio State rivalry. So how is everybody doing this afternoon? Well, good. Thanks for having us, Alex. Very well. Thank you. Yes, thanks for having us. All right. So, Professor Markovitz, you study sports and, and, and... and how sports interacts with us in society and the role sports plays in society and politics. So can, can you tell me, why did you start to study sports and, and what, does the role, what is the role that, that sports plays in your academic pursuits in your life? Well, um, it started with uh, my having been a sports fan all my life. And uh, it's... Um, it, been the most important part of my discourse with my father, and uh, um, I've looked at sports uh, uh, through all my life, where I lived in Europe and the U.S., and it's, uh, uh, but I always saw it as a kind of a hobby, and then not until the 1980s, um, at a particular 